0: So would you open up to Matthew chapter five? We'll be in verse, verse 33 this morning. Matthew chapter five, uh, beginning in verse 33. And while you're making your way to Matthew five, verse 33, by way of review, we've been making our way through the gospel of Matthew, and in particular, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Which is found in chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew, but in particular, even dialed in more, we've been in verses 17 through 48 of chapter 5 over the last few weeks, where Jesus is showing his disciples examples of the righteousness that God requires for someone to enter the kingdom of heaven. And this is not like all encompassing, but this is definitely something that Jesus is making exa- uh, some examples of that. There is a righteousness greater than what the scribes and the Pharisees were teaching. Those were the teachers of the day in in Israel, Uh, the teachers and interpreters of the law and the prophets. There was a righteousness that was required that was greater than that. And so in verses 17 to 48, Jesus gives us six examples of what the scribes and Pharisees were teaching. Uh, basically focused on the external keeping of the law and the internal righteous, well, that's an external righteousness. Well, God also required an internal righteousness, motives, and attitudes and all those types of things. So, God requires an internal and an external righteousness. And we went over the first couple of examples of what they were teaching and then what God required. Remember in verses 21 through 26, the law said, Don't murder. And the Pharisees emphasized a righteousness, a self righteousness, and, Hey, I didn't commit the physical act of murder, therefore I'm righteous before God. And Jesus comes along and says, Hey, it's not just murder that God will hold you accountable to that. He requires you to have a righteous outward action, but it's also how, what's going on in your heart towards your brother and sister. Do you have anger in your heart towards them? If so, you're going to be accountable to God for that as well, because you have murder in your heart. And then in the second example in verse 23 through 30, the law said not to commit adultery. And we saw that it wasn't just the physical act of adultery that God condemns, but also lusting after someone else in your heart that is not your spouse. And then in verses 20, uh, and then the third example in verse 31 through 32 was that of divorce and many of the scribes and the Pharisees, they had taken the provision of divorce in the old Testament that Moses had provided because of the hardness of heart. And they said, you know, it said, if you find something, you know, wrong with your spouse, so to speak, uh, You know, that you're able to give them a a certificate of divorce. And so they took that very liberally. Like they just took great extreme uh, with that. And that certificate kind of became uh, the popular thing is was to divorce someone for any reason. You know, you didn't like them or they were bugging you or that you didn't get along. and, And so therefore, let's just get divorced. And Jesus said, no, that that marriage wasn't just a legal contract. It's not just a legal contract that could be annulled for any reason, because God is taking two people and putting them together. You can't undo what God has done. Pretty crazy, huh? And and then we see the only exception Jesus gives there was for adultery. And then we later read in 1 Corinthians the abandonment of an unbeliever. And so, in other words, it was much narrower than what what the scribes and Pharisees were talking about. And the reason why the scribes and Pharisees were giving all these types of things is because they wanted to have an external righteousness. Look, I've kept the law. I did not murder. I didn't commit adultery. Hey, we're good with divorce. You know, it's legitimate. It's something I didn't like. So, but here's the here's the certificate. Go along, and Jesus is saying that is not the heart of God in all of His laws. And actually, if we are, if you read the law, love actually fulfills the law, <laughs> and that's that's what we find on the flip side. That's what's taught in the New Testament. So Jesus is here is is, uh, is continuing to give us. Uh, examples of how the Pharisees were giving in external righteousness. And by the way, we get into this too. I went to church, check. I gave my tithe, check. I, I went and served at so-and-so, check. You know, and we did these outward types of things. And we can be evil on the inside, right? Okay, yeah, yes. We can be evil on the inside. Like, we can do religious stuff on the outside. What God wants is total Righteousness inside and out. That's what he requires. And we're going to read this morning how Jesus summed up the righteousness that God required to enter into the kingdom in verse 48, where Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And that's what he's leading to you got to have a righteousness that's greater than the scribes and Pharisees. And he gives a sixth example. And he goes, therefore be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That is the righteousness required to enter the kingdom of God in case anybody's trying to get in. It's perfection. Absolute, 100% sinless perfection. And all of us should be absolutely going, we're all doomed. Amen? Yes. That's what Paul says. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is the gospel, the good news. The bad news is that we all don't make it. The good news is that someone made it on our behalf. And he was the one teaching and giving these examples who just had said, listen, I did not come to destroy the law and the prophets, but I came to fulfill them. Not only fulfill them externally and not doing those things, but internally with the right motives and the right actions. And not only that, he went to the cross to fulfill that all demanded for a penalty for sin. And and he is our savior. Uh, Romans 3, 21 through 23 tells us that the righteousness of God has been revealed, has been manifested apart from the law. Although the prophets bear witness to it, the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all believe. Jesus earlier said in chapter five, that he did not come to destroy them, but to fulfill them. He is our fulfillment He is our righteousness apart from the law. He's the one who did it all, did what we could not do. And here's the cool thing is that he wants us to be born again. And his spirit beckons to us and calls us. And so what the law does is it shows us that we can't make it. That's what it does. It shows us that God is totally 100% absolutely righteous and we fall short. See, the standard isn't you. The standard isn't me. It's him. (laughs) right? You know, you look at me and you go, Oh, I'm better than that guy. I can get in. (laughs) Right. But when we look at God and his absolute holiness, we go, Oh, there's no way. Right. So God came down, became one of us, did what we cannot do, died on our behalf and rose again and freely offers eternal life to all who repent and believe. Amen. Man, what a sweet thing for our hearts. That's his promise. And so this morning, as we pick up in verse 33, we pick up on the fourth example that Jesus gives. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the king. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make uh, one hair uh, white or black. Uh, Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil or from the evil one. Now, what this example just simply is talking about, Jesus is saying there's a righteousness that needs to be above the scribes and Pharisees. Is he saying that you got to be people of your word? That's it. What God requires is absolute truthfulness inside and outside. That's what he's getting at people of our word. Now what happened is that the command of God not to swear falsely had been messed around with by the Pharisees and had been warped. The command of God is a command to speak truthfully and what apparently had happened is that people in order to show that what they were promising or saying was valid, they started to swear by all these things that were greater, greater than that. How many of you have grown up have sworn on things? you know? And how many of you were lying when you were swearing on those things? <laughs> That's what Jesus is addressing. You know, I swear on someone's grave or I do this and that. And what you're trying to do is is to say how serious you are about what you're saying. But how many times is is that just a facade for evil? And that's what was going on in the hearts of, of many in Israel is that what they were saying was not truly what was going on in their hearts. And so now the problem is that there is no need to go through all of that gesturing if you're a man or a woman of the word, of your word. You don't need to do that. How many of you know people that you know that their yes means yes and their no means no? Amen. And you just know when they say yes or no, that's what they mean. But then you have people who do a lot of posturing and all this type of stuff, right? And this is the implication here is that people were not men and women of their word. He was addressing that. And there was a there was a lax there was a an allowance for that in the teachings of the Pharisees that that people were saying, hey, I could swear by this and swear by that and swear by this and that and and all this type of stuff. So these lofty oaths were giving the appearance that they were being truthful when actually Jesus says, you know what? No, don't make any oaths at all. Don't make any oaths at all. Now, this does not, when Jesus is talking about this, there's a context. He's not saying when you're married, you aren't going to make any oaths. You're not going to make any vows. He's not saying you take an office not to not to vow on something. That's that's not what he's talking about. He's saying don't make it a facade. Don't take and swear by these things that are, are, are greater than you. And I think that's the, that's the heart of it here. This is addressing using things that are associated with God when what is really needed is for a person just to be a man of their word, a woman of their word. Let their yes be yes and their no be no. You see, people were swearing by all these things greater than them. They were were swearing by heaven and by earth and by you know, Jerusalem and by their own heads, all which were under the dominion and control of God. So they wouldn't quite swear to God, even though we just just do that today all the time. Maybe as a culture. But they were they were doing everything but swearing to God. they were swearing about everything that was high and holy. And they were using them as an external facade to cloak their unrighteousness. But you see what God requires is truth in the inward parts. That's what he asks for. Truth in, that we be men and women of the word that of our word, actually that, that we speak as if every word were under oath before God. How about that? <laughs> that if we were always speaking under oath before God, because we are, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And everything else Jesus says is from evil, from the evil one. Speak truthfully. If you say yes, let it mean yes. And if you say no, let it mean no. Now we can do that respectfully and all those types of things, but. It's good to get in the habit of saying yes and no and meaning it. It's a good thing, right? This is important because the evil one, he works in facades. That's how he is. He's an angel of light and his ministers are angel of light. And there's a lot of facade that goes around them, but it's a cloak Regarding deception, it's not just truth. And Christ in us, when we come to Christ, he produces the kind of righteousness that he's speaking about in our speech. That we would be truthful people. You know, when it talks about, uh, you know, like when you put on the full armor of God, it talks about putting on, uh, you know, uh, putting on the truth, the belt of truth. It's not, it, it's, it's saying that we are undergirded by truth. That's what, that's what our lives are, are built upon. We're built upon the truth. The enemy has his weapons, our lies and deception and deceit and all this type of stuff. But if we're not only speaking the truth, but living the truth, our lives are fortified in Christ. That's a, that's a beautiful thing. And that's what he's saying here. Let your yes be yes, your no be no be men and women of the truth. No need to, you know, hey, I promise you that this is going to happen and blah, 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 blah. And I give all these qualifiers. Just be men who say yes and no and when and how. And Lord, Lord, help us in that. Right. So, again, an external appearance of speaking the truth through oaths was condoned. But God required that there be no deception in speech. Let our yes be yes and our no be no. Now, the fifth example Jesus gives us begins in verse thirty eight. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him also the other. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go the one mile, go with him too. Verse 42, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, the Old Test- in the Old Testament context, Jesus is quoting from the Law of Moses in places like Exodus 21-24 uh, and Leviticus 24-20. An eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth. And, and, and there was other things that they would, talk, they would talk about there. There was a context there. But always the context of the command of this, it was being given to those who were rulers, to the judges, to those who were in charge. He was telling them, be just in your judgments. Let the punishment fit the crime. That's what he was saying. In other words, someone murders, they need to lose their life. Someone steals, they need to lose an arm. Whatever it is. The punishment fits the crime. Be just judges. That's the context of that was given. That's government. God was giving that to the Israeli government. You must be this way. Because if you are not, if you are, let's just say, if you are under judging, that is unjust. And if you are overbearing, that is unjust. Be just in your judgments. Don't we all long for that? I mean, I don't, you know. In society, yeah, we want just judges. And that's who he was speaking to. The, the, the punishment would fit the crime. Again, these commands were given to government, government but that was never meant to be given to an individual, an individual basis person. We are not the government. I know we're in America, but I'm not the one who goes and executes or has the authority to go execute justice. I am not a vigilante. I am not the person who takes vengeance upon someone or acts something out. Does that make sense? I know we all want it to be, I know stop it now. That can't that can't happen. But it was never intended for individual citizens to be encouraged to do that, to be the judges, to be vigilantes, to repay. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That was left for the government. And that was the context there. But Jesus clears all this up by giving four examples of what it's like to be an individual when you're facing someone who is evil or facing uh, bad situations in, in unjust situations. He gives us four overarching truths uh, starting in verse 39 verse 39 is the overarching truth here actually and then he gives us four examples but he says but I say to you do not resist or do not repay the one who is evil okay so our enactment is when, when evil happens to us we are not to be the ones who then do the eye for the eye the tooth for a tooth situation that is not our role God has not given us that role That's that's his role. And it's also government's role. okay? but if anyone he says and he says here, he gives the first example. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, there's a context to this. This is not saying that we are to allow ourselves or our loved ones or everyone, you know, to be raped and murdered and all that type of safe. There's a a place for self-defense. I don't think that's what God is, is talking about here. I think it has to deal with like Paul was talking about in Corinthians in a certain situation when people were actually being shamed for the gospel, when they were being struck in the face, when they were being excommunicated from a synagogue, they'd come and they'd slap them in the face, all this type of stuff. This is, listen, do not retaliate. Resist the urge to do the eye for an eye or tooth for tooth to get justice, but turn your cheek, turn your cheek, be humble entrust yourself to God. And that's, That's the idea here is responding to someone who is angry, uh, so angry with you that they slap you in the face. And hopefully it's for reasons that are just not unjust that you deserve it. The idea is that it's a deep insult. Now, what's being warned against is retaliation here. We don't retaliate. How many of you have been treated unjustly, maybe at work or whatever it might be? We don't retaliate. That's not what we do. We turn the other cheek. I, I really like what John MacArthur says on this. He says, when someone attacks our right to dignity, we too are not to defend that right by retaliation. We leave the protection and defense of our dignity in God's hands, knowing that one day we will live and reign with him in his, in his kingdom in great glory. Amen. Just like, okay, Lord, you're going to, you're going to square all this up. i put it in your hands. And that's a hard thing to do, especially when you're taking a slap in the face. Another example, verse 40. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. You know, now some think this is, this isn't necessarily because the person being sued is in the right. He's not saying it's, it's so, so one, one view of this is that it's someone is, is being sued justly because they had done something wrong. Uh, and it could be referring to a claim meet against someone in that situation where they had no, no money to repay. And so what would happen in those days is, is people would be repaid in clothing. But what couldn't be required by law is to take someone's tunic, which would be their heavy coat. And their heavy coat would be kind of like their bed. People were poor and you couldn't take away their, their tunic, their base necessity, because it would keep them warm in the cold and it would double as their bed. So you can't take that away from them, so to speak. But so some people think that that might have been one of the one of the ways this is being interpreted. But to show how remorseful a person would be, the interpretation of that would be, Jesus says, not only pay what's owed, but to show that you're so remorseful, give them your tunic too, give them your base necessity. So that could be one way of looking at that. That's one interpretation. But the other one would be uh, that someone is wrongfully suing you. That seems to be the context here. That someone's wrongfully doing evil against you. And Jesus says don't retaliate. Give them what they want and give them more. That's a hard one. First Corinthians 6, Paul was addressing the Corinthian church regarding many lawsuits that were going on in the body of Christ. Listen, in that culture they just were suing each other for fun. Because they like to get in front of courts and make their arguments and pontificate and, and do the the, the verbal exchanges, because that was of high value in Greek culture. And so they were just suing each other, like, and, and they're bringing all their suits before pagan courts. And this is what Paul says in verse 7, uh, verses 7 through 9 of First Corinthians 6. He says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. He's talking to the church. This is why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be Defrauded. But you yourselves wrong and you defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And he goes on. And then he says, such were some of you, and all this type of stuff. That's awesome. But the context of here is he's saying, listen, when your stuff gets dragged before a pagan court, it's not about your stuff, it's about your witness to Christ. Be defrauded. Be- it's better to be defrauded. It's better to have your things taken away than for Christ's name to be dragged through the mud. Now there's a context I know because people will go this and go, let's just sue the heck out of every Christian and they have got to give us their stuff. I'm sure there has to be wisdom in this, but the context was, listen, take every opportunity to be a witness before Christ. Don't let your personal holding of your possessions get in the way of winning someone to Christ and be a witnessing before God, before unbelievers. Before evil people. And there's a bigger context here. Because we're going to roll into. How do you treat your enemies? Because that's what he's talking about here. So uh, wrestle with that with me. Um, and, and maybe if you've got a better take on that. I, it's it's pretty, pretty. It's hard to reconcile some of these things. And I think. Nevertheless that's the standard. <laughs> you know. When you think of God. He's, he is treated wrong. And he's defrauded. And he gives when he's mistreated. Nevertheless. So I think that's the example there. I think that's more in line with what Jesus is saying. Anyways, the third example, verse 41. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Now, many of you already know that the Romans occupied Israel, right? And one of the things that the Roman soldiers could do is they could take any Jew, any subject of theirs, and they could force someone to take their stuff, a Roman mile. And so they'd, they'd go, hey, you know, here, pick this up and carry my stuff one mile. You just have to get let go of whatever you're doing and you'd have to pick up their stuff and go one mile with them. And I think this is what happened with Simeon at the cross, right? When Jesus was carrying his cross, he couldn't carry anymore. The Romans said, hey, you pick up that cross and you carry it up. You, you, you do that. And he was under obligation to do so. And that's what that's what it was like. And so what does Jesus say to do? Go two miles. Can you imagine the, the witness you start to have on mile two? You start mile one, you know, everybody's just like, throw it down. See you later. Right? But imagine mile two. Oh, I'm going to go one more mile with you. What? Oh, yeah. Let me tell you about Jesus. You, just <laughs> you start carrying the, carrying the sack and you go, why would you do that? Oh, man, you don't know about the love of God and what he's done for me and what he's done and And you just start sharing the Lord with people. So we have opportunities individually when things are done that are wrong to us to act in such a way or to respond in such a way that manifests God's love and grace towards someone, you know? And so we need to consider those things. Jesus says, go two miles. Last example, verse 43. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And the idea is that we are to be a giving people not just to taking people. And again, um, you know, beggars and borrowers here, we are to have our hearts open to people in need, beggars and borrowers. People are asking stuff from us and people begging for things. Now, obviously there needs to be wisdom in this type of stuff. You don't want to give something to someone that's going to destroy them, right? Uh, so that there, there's wisdom there. Hopefully we understand that. But the idea is our hearts are open and we don't resist that. We don't develop a callousness to giving and to helping people out who are in need. Amen. Be benevolent. And we don't consider our possessions our own, but actually that we are stewards of those possessions. All we have is gods, right? This church is gods. Guitars are gods. Drums are gods. Lights are gods. Chairs are gods. And you're gods. Did you know that? Kind of wild. And guess what? You know, your work. It's a means of God's grace in your life, your money, your bank account. If you're his, it's, it's his. You're stewards of it. So be open to the Holy Spirit. Realize he'll take care of you. Realize that he wants to use you and flow through you and love you. Don't harden your heart towards that. Amen. Being vessels of righteousness. Verse 43. Now, Jesus comes back to the big picture and he gives us a sixth and last example of the righteousness that God requires. OK. Here we go. You've heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. The first part of verse 43 the command to love your neighbor is obviously from the law of moses leviticus 1918 right leviticus 1918 love your you know love your love your neighbor right as yourself right and the second but the second part to hate your enemies that's not yeah that's, that's that that was from the pharisees the pharisees decided to add that in there the, the scribes and the pharisees and the jewish leaders there and the Pharisees saw that their neighbor as, as those who are aligned with them. How many of you go, hey, neighbor, hi, brother, how you doing? Those are the people who are aligned with you. Right? That's kind of, that's their view. And how many of you have neighbors around you that aren't really your neighbors? Right? They're, they're not my neighbors. They're, they're my neighbors. Anybody else? Yeah, exactly. The Pharisees saw their neighbors as those who were aligned with them. And therefore God only required them to love those who were so-called righteous like them. So they took the, the idea of a neighbor and they made it convenient for how they would love one another. Anyone else think that that's operating in their life? Well, same with, same with the Jews there. But Jesus in the parable of the Good Samaritan, he clears up what's a neighbor. Look at it with me. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Luke 10, 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, teacher, rabbi, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And He said to him, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and your neighbors yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. (laughs) Yeah, do this perfectly and you will live all of it all the time. Right. But he desired to justify himself saying, I've done this right. Or I want to know, you know, that kind of thing. He said to Jesus, and who's my neighbor? Who do I have to love? Who is this neighbor? Define it for me. And Jesus replied, not with an answer, but with a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and and departed, leaving him half dead. Jerusalem to Jericho. So you're going up from a high elevation to a very low elevation. And it's a windy road and it's dirty and all that kind of stuff. And there were bandits who preyed upon people going in and out of Jerusalem. Okay. Someone got caught by robbers there. They beat him and they departed, leaving him half dead. Verse 31. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by the other side. Why is that? Because this man is obviously unclean and I am very clean. I'm not going to touch. I'm not going to get unclean because I've got to worship God. That's the context there. Sounds weird, but the Jew would go. Oh yeah. Don't touch those people. So he passed by the other side. Verse 32. And likewise, a Levite. When he came to the place, he saw him pass by the other side. Same thing. The verse 33. But a Samaritan enters the Samaritan here. But, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came to where he was and he saw him and he had compassion. Now, at this point, all the Jews are going to go livid because these the Samaritans were the arch enemies of Israel. They just would say, besides Romans, they just hated them because the Samaritans were half-breed Jews. That's what they were. They were Jews who had been assimilated into Syrian, uh, the Assyrian life when the conquest came and the northern kingdom was taken over. These Jews actually remained and they intermarried with uh, Assyrians and then they developed their own kind of pseudo-religious Culture And they had their own center of worship there in Samaria that kind of mirrored that of Jerusalem. So the Jews just hated them. They had their own commandments, their own prophets, all this kind of stuff that went on. And so they just hated them. And so Jesus is just bringing up, and, you know, the Jews went by, but a Samaritan, when he saw him, he had compassion on him. Now, you got to know they're just freaking out at this point, right? Not when it, he couldn't possibly have compassion on this guy. Oh, goodness, they're just mad. Verse 34. And he went to him, and, he, and he, how did he show compassion on him? He bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper and said, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will pray you when I come back. Not only did he see him on the side of the road, He took him and he tended to him. He took care of his wounds. He put him on his animal, took him to a safe place, paid for the safe place, said, if there's anything that needs to happen to this guy, put it on my account. I'm going to come back and make sure he's okay." Right. Verse 36. He says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said to them. The one who showed him mercy, and Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. You see, the Samaritans, they were people despised by the Jews. This Samaritan understood what it was to love your enemy. Whereas the Jew did not, and that's Jesus' point. That they were so concerned with outward religious kind of trappings that they wouldn't get beyond themselves to actually have the heart and the commandment of God that, listen, the love of God does not stay in this room, church. It doesn't stay in our little family. It doesn't stay in our little, our our life groups. It doesn't just stay here. It extends beyond into the backyard of our enemies. To our neighbors who might not be aligned with us and who have different things going on that we disagree with. It extends into their lives. Just as God left his kingdom and came into our darkness and extended his love towards us. In Christ Jesus. Amen. Not one amen. 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 All right. All right. I know it's rhetorical. Jesus says in verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies. Back in Matthew five, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So how do we love our enemies? Well, the way that Christ loved us. And we pray for them, not pray that they would die and go away. I mean, that's, that's kind of sometimes our prayers, right? We pray that God would have mercy on them, that God would soften their hearts, that God would provide an opportunity for us to share the Lord with them, that we would be good examples and witnesses to them. Anyone else? Amen. Anyone else struggle with that? Like anger in your heart towards enemies? And we've got a lot more of them apparently recently. Anyone else? This is an opportunity for us to learn what Jesus says in all these matters. And let's not just have an external facade of righteousness. But actually live out the commands of God. See, this God's, God wants a church that is sensitive to his Holy Spirit, that's filled with his Holy Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is love. And it's not at the expense of truth. Amen? We're not compromising truth. We need to get that in our heads as well. The other side of it is there are churches in the name of love who are compromising truth. That's not love. It's not love. It's not love to lie to people. We do how God did, how he came to this, the woman at the well and told her how it was, but still showed her the time of day and the kindness and the love that she desperately needed. She spoke to her heart. He let her actually do something for him. It's pretty amazing. I said, you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven, so that you may be daughters of your father who is in heaven. Listen, the idea is that kids emulate their parents. And this imagery of us being sons and, and daughters of, the, of our father in heaven is that we do what he would do. Be perfect. Therefore, as your father in heaven is perfect. The point is that this is how God treats his enemies. This is how God treated us. Amen. Amen. We were enemies. You were an enemy. You were far away. And God came to you in his love and extended his kindness towards you in Christ Jesus. Amen. Yes. He loves them in that he extends mercy and kindness towards them. While you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. Amen. He calls us to pray for them. Remember Jesus on the cross. What did he what did he utter? About the people who are doing all these wicked things to them, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. You know, if there is such a spiritual darkness and blindness over people's hearts, and I know this because I've been under it. I've personally experienced it, and God, in His grace, He took away the blindness, and this continues to do that. And the mercy and the compassion that we should have is, man, they're just so under the influence of the enemy and the flesh. And it's not a judgment. It's a heart cry that says, Lord, lift that from them. If they only knew who you were, if they could only see how how much you love them and how much how, how dark their sin is, but how light and forgiving you are. If they could just see this contrast. And I feel like the Lord's like, yeah, that's why you're there. I did that to you so that you could now go shine that in their life. And so we pray for them, remembering that they're under the sway of the evil one, just as we all were. And such were some of you, but you were washed. Amen. Verse 45 B for he makes his son. He makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God loves us all. So much that it rains, he, he gives us necessity, he gives us food and get, everybody kind of gets the same common grace treatment. They call it common grace in, in theology. Just the, the, what God just lays out and blesses upon every human being being under his dominion. That, that bad people get rain. Good people get rain. He just blesses generally because that's his nature and he's good. We have air that we're breathing and water that we're drinking, and food that we eat. This is common grace. The kindness of God extended to all. And we should extend that. Amen? Mm-hmm. Love your enemy. Verse 46. And he goes, for if you love those who love you, and you're probably seated next to those people, which is a good thing. You should love them, right? That's where it starts, right? Your family, people you love. He says, don't even tax collectors do the same? He says, for, for what reward do you have? Don't even tax collectors do the same? Verse 47, and if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? I mean, think about this. It's, it's natural to love those who love you, right? It's easy to love those who love you. Yeah. Even tax collectors who are among the, the most despised in Jewish cultures, They greet other tax collectors. They love other tax collectors. They throw parties and they all get together and do things and invite each other to events. They do these things. They they show a common love and a common grace towards one another. Jesus is saying, yeah, you kind of getting that one. And Think about greeting one another. You know, we have meet and greet. Who do you greet? Who you know, who you're comfortable with, who loves you back. That's okay. I'm I'm not, you know, not condemning you. You start there, but uh, it works its way out. Right. So 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 are we focused on the new person who walks in the door? Are we focused on the person who's far away or doesn't know or seems far off? Are we extending the love of God to them? And by the way, I've heard from people that this is this is something that you do. You do love the stranger. You do get into their lives. And so I'm encouraging you in that, by the way. It's not a condemnation. You guys do that. So praise God. Amen. But maybe beyond our walls, <laughs> beyond our doors. Yes, here. Amen. But beyond, right? Beyond. Who's the new person at work? Who's the ostracized person at work? Who's the person at school or whatever it might be? It doesn't mean you need to, you know, befriend them and, and, and you know, and just be something you're not. But I mean, just show common grace and kindness and love and courtesy to, to people to create, you know, to allow the Lord to even work in circumstances how many of you were that person far off and someone in Christ actually came and said hello to you and loved you and loved you into the kingdom and you knew your life was messed up. Yeah. Or maybe you didn't. And then you found out as the Holy spirit started to convict and to draw you closer. So Gentiles do the same, by the way, Gentiles greet one another, right? Right. This isn't special, but there should be a difference in the people of God. And that's what he's saying. Not just an external righteousness, not just doing what's comfortable, but going beyond and having that heart that reaches out. This is the heart of evangelism. That we love enemies. So, Let me ask, you know, uh, what's one way in which God would seek to bring people into his kingdom? It's for you to love your enemies. Amen. Go love them. Truth and love, not compromising the truth, not compromising love. They're, They're one package there. Amen. Think of ways. Ask God for that. Say, God, how can I love this person who drives me crazy? How can I do good for them? How can I pray for them? How can I extend your grace to them the way that you've done that to me? This is radical then and it's radical. in now when we're taught to retaliate and to ostracize and to hate and to cancel one another, right? Don't do that. Don't fall into the culture. Don't just hear what you want to hear. Go out there and love people. Amen. Again, no way in, in no way is any of this, calling us to throw truth aside. That's the foundation through which we love. The truth causes us to love. The truth causes us to love. It's our springboard into, into action. Amen. You know, for his kids, then we mimic our father and we'll have this. We have this internal righteousness developed within us as we just lean into the Holy spirit. As the spirit works into us, we are, are, are fashioned into the image of Christ day after day. We're changed people. We learn to love our enemies. Just as Jesus taught and demonstrated verse 48, he says, therefore, after I've said all of this, therefore you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. This is how it happens in the king's house. This is how these are the house rules. (laughs) Amen. God's completely righteous and that's his standard. And guess what? His Holy Spirit in you is going to accomplish these things. Power to change things that you cannot change. Power to do things that you cannot do. Power to love in ways that you've never loved before. Amen. It's an upside down kingdom, but it's the kingdom he's brought us into, which is right side up, actually. So let's let's pray and let's ask God to do this. Work of grace in our hearts. Father, thank you so much for chapter five. It's huge. And I just want to thank you, Lord, that you loved us when we were far off. God put in us a heart, the heart of Jesus, that cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Lord, may we be those who pray for our enemies, who love our enemies, who hold to the truth and live the truth. Teach us and grow us in this, Lord. We want to be more like you every day. Forgive us where we've fallen and cleanse us, God. But pick us up and send us right back in the middle of it, God. We need you. And we long for you. So all glory to you this week. Show us who we are to love. In your name, amen. All right. Go find some neighbors. Amen. All right. God bless you. Dismissed.